G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on whatever it is, your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We really don't ask for anything in return, or, or not really much, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you just go pop to the Apple Podcast Store or iTunes, and if you would leave us a review, that would be great. A five-star review would be the best, um, and uh, and we've recently received a couple. I'll, I'll just try and sort of uh, uh, find them for you obviously the height of organization that uh, that i have um so uh aces five star that was good by sh not not sure who sh is but thank you very much just started away through these on the way to work and have been very useful so far more jokes please <coughs> excuse me well, well we'll try and help you out i'm not not sure whether we can do that today but maybe in an ad hoc uh, ad hoc basis we, we can um and also rose bunny kindly wrote fantastic podcasts so these are really interesting informative podcasts uh, featuring specialists in their fields the content is interesting and applicable to clinical practice and even for revision purpose for students and clinicians so thank you both very much for that it's uh, it's very kind and and we do really appreciate it because it's help helps us with metrics that uh, um soon brian and i will understand a little more about and helps us delivering this information to the people that want to listen it which is which is you but if you could spend a little bit of a bit of time um just just go to the uh, the apple podcast store and uh and leave us a review that would be great so today it gives me my great privilege to uh, to introduce uh, Dr. Stefano Cortellini, who's one of our lecturers here in emotional and critical care. Um, he uh, is interested in a, a manner of uh, of things, but uh, today we've decided just to narrow the focus and talk about the use of ultrasound in uh, emergency practice and, and really in, in critical patients as well. So thank you, Stefano, for uh, agreeing to come on again. Thank you, Dom, for inviting me again. I will try to make some jokes today. Maybe we'll try. <laughs> we, we, we could try. Difficult. We, we could have a, have, a, have a bit of fun. But uh, um, but yes, yeah, so, so I mean, I, I suppose asking a lot of a lot of friends, but uh, you're you're very uh, uh, you're very welcome to uh, to come on more and more <laughs> and we can talk about different things. I'm not sure about whether the audience wants to listen to N-Gals just yet. Yeah, but I'm sure I'm sure there'll be a time when they when they yeah, do. Yeah, in twenty three years. Twenty three years, maybe. <laughs> so, uh, so I suppose like the use of uh, ultrasound. Uh, you know, there's different terminology. Maybe we should uh, we should uh, we should gloss over that. But uh, the different terminology, uh, but the use of like point of care ultra ultrasound, um, or might have heard of, of different use of uh, um, focused assessment using sonography for trauma. So the fast uh, scan, and whether you use that for the abdomen or or the, the thorax and there's certain papers that have been out in the literature i think a certain boy Sam was one of the, the people that started uh, that when he was at tufts maybe in the, the uh, about 15 years ago maybe or mm, something like yeah. that um and uh, so, so so can you explain a little bit about how we use uh, ultrasound sort of uh, today in, in uh, 2017 yeah absolutely i mean the uh, it's a huge resource isn't it in the ultrasound it's changed completely i think the uh, the the way we approach to our patients, uh, and I think actually it has changed as well the the survival of our patients. I guess the way that it should be seen, on my point of view, is um, the ultrasound performed by emergency vets, so not imagers, being complementary to the physical examination. So the physical examination still needs to be done. I don't think you can skip a physical exam because 
you rely completely on abdominal ultrasound. Um, I think it's still useful because, again, like when you do serial examinations of your patient, you'll probably do a physical exam rather than anything else, and that's probably going to be more useful than than repeating ultrasounds every <laughs> hour or so. Um, and also because the physical examination just gives you a, a list of things in your mind that, that the ultrasound doesn't, and the ultrasound probably confirms you things that you that the physical exam just just suggests so i think it's complementary after the physical exam but it's a huge i think it's a huge resource because when you have especially a collapsed patient or a very unstable patient it allows you to make uh, a diagnosis a bit more quickly and try to uh, narrow the spectrum of differential diagnosis that you have so for example i, I don't know the classical collapse case that comes in rottweiler completely collapsed um hypotensive um obviously there are a number of diagnoses and you can't you've got to go fishing there i guess it's not the the correct maybe clinical reasoning approach but you still need to rule out the worst case scenario and that's i think still um, a reasonable approach in emergency. And so the ultrasound helps in that. Like you look at the ultrasound, uh, the abdomen, and you see if there's any free fluid for potential hemorrhage or, or, or septic presence. So, so where do you look when you use uh, an ultrasound with the abdomen? Uh, usually in the um, traditional uh, points, which is, again, near the, the right kidney, right kidney, left kidney, and then near the bladder and uh, in between the liver lobes, between the diaphragm and the liver. So, um, so the idea there is it meant to capture where where free fluid might accumulate, so in between liver lobes, near the, that, that sort of yeah. diaphragm, liver area, around the bladder. It's basically like using the bladder, I find it a little easier to see free fluid because you've got that contrast, particularly if there's... Yeah. fluid in the bladder to see something around absolutely. it absolutely cranial so especially cranially yeah and then around the kidneys you're also looking at the retroperitoneal area which i think sometimes like it, it, it is important in in traumatic cases but sometimes can be where fluid can accumulate that you haven't looked so it so it is important yeah. isn't it to have a look at those four quadrangles and i believe that's the, the, the first paper that that's how they assess from road traffic accidents you know the the score that those patients got that they were yeah. when they were hit by you know had had any uh, road traffic accident trauma and and whether that correlated to transfusion requirements yeah. etc it was quite interesting because i think in that study uh, certain study um dr boyson study uh, professor, uh, professor, boys <laughs> uh, and study. Uh, I think showed that there was an incident of like fifty percent of hemoabdomen, which you wouldn't um, you wouldn't think was that high, but actually it is just because the the power of ultrasound in detecting subclinical bleedings um, it is huge, and that's why we actually use it. I mean, finding free fluid doesn't mean that it's bleeding out, but it means that there may be a little hemorrhage. And yes, looking at these four points helps in detecting it more easily and in actually monitoring. So if you find fluid only in one point, and then two hours later you find it in three points, the hemorrhage is potentially worsening. The clinical exam will tell you, um, all the other parameters will tell you, but certainly you can actually grade it on the imaging side. It gives a more um, structured assessment, didn't it? I mean, we're both 
kind of trained in the same place by by similar people and so um you know we were told you know maybe you can use ultrasound to look for free fluid and that's it but at least that uh, you have like a, a structured approach like to where to look for yeah. free fluid and an and important characteristic but now that like, ultrasound i mean it's, it was at uh, uh ivex last week and there's a stand of uh, for android based devices they have a, a probe i think that philips make that you can plug into that and and uh, and have a look i'm not sure that obviously the screen resolution depends on your um no but you can you can actually check it isn't it like you can take your your probe and uh, wireless probe and you just connect it there and yeah, it's it's, it's, it's technology is changing and i yeah. suppose that the use of ultrasound is has become more more definitely more more apparent how about when we assess uh, the, the thorax? Uh, how, how do you how do you approach that? Well, I mean, in the literature, there are two methods that are described. One is the normal one, so four points, two per side, and you look at the pericardial chest tube side, which is around eight ninth intercostal space. Sorry, not pericardial, the, the the chest tube side, which is eighth ninth intercostal space dorsally, and then the pericardial side, which is around the fifth intercostal space bilaterally. Uh, then basically they uh, there was another uh, protocol which increased the sensitivity I guess to detect the abnormalities looking at more areas in the thorax and that's the bet blue which looks at four uh, at four points per side looking at also at perihilar area and the cranial lung lobe so um, I usually do the the, the, the the four sites and then look at the periahylar area. Um, literally, I, I guess when I'm looking at the, the, the thoracic ultrasound, uh, I'm looking for free fluid, yeah, and you'll see that easily uh, at the level of the pericardial chest tube site. Um, pericardial fluid, uh, so that's again from the pericardial fluid, and then potentially presence of B lines, um, which um maybe again like a sign of parenchymal pulmonary disease um whether it's interstitial or the other so it's, it's a it's yeah. a lot sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a lot easier isn't it when you look at an abdomen because it's it's full of uh, uh, abdominal organs mm. viscera and so if you're looking at fluid and it comes up in contrast to the organs that you're looking at found like looking at abdomens i think most people will be comfortable with but i think looking at the thorax because you shouldn't really see anything mm. because air's in there and you're not getting any interface i think that some of the issues are it's harder to interpret i think like looking at the around the pericardium might not be so bad because again you're looking for that contrast mm. around the heart but but looking at the chest i think it takes a little bit of time for be happy what you're what you're seeing absolutely especially if you if you consider like uh, there's, there's all this think about looking at the glide sign no so which is the shearing mode uh, shearing movement of uh, the two pleura and if you see it on the ultrasound it means that basically there's no um pleural space disease uh, so no pneumothorax really uh, if the problem is that if you don't see it it doesn't mean that you've got pneumothorax because it could be because you're panting because your patient is panting or 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 just you haven't played the probe appropriately or maybe you're not you don't know what you're looking for which is what happened to me like uh, you know at the beginning of before the residency i was looking at the glide sign and then i started the residency and uh, you guys told me no actually this is the glide sign so i think that's quite important to know what you're looking for and it could be subtle and depending on the patient so um 
I think now on internet there are several images as well that could be actually looked and um, I mean YouTube now is the new encyclopedia but for the emergency ultrasound even looking at you know what you're what you're looking for may be extremely useful to to avoid having I don't know making like a diagnosis of pneumothorax just based on on an image um, or a sequence um, and try to see what you're looking for yeah it's basically yeah absolutely right like it's quite subtle the changes like of, mm. of that of that glide sign and you need to be happy with that and you might get some movement artifact if a patient is is panting as you said that might give you a a false um uh, positive as in like there isn't any uh, any any uh, uh, or false negative, I should say. There isn't any pleural space mm. disease, but then I think it always feeds back. Um, what are we looking for? What's the, what's happened to the patient? So it's very rare that we have no knowledge about what's happened with the patient, like particularly with with dogs, right? So they might have been hit by a car. So if we think that we can't hear any lung sounds when we auscultate the chest, mm. then I wouldn't put a probe on and say, well, well, it looks normal. You know, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd probably do a thracosynthesis yeah. anyway. You know, Absolutely. I think, and they, they've done, they, there are some studies in people, aren't they? They're definitely the, the uh, um, sensitivity and specificity of thoracic auscultation compared to ultrasound. And maybe ultrasound improves, like if people are appropriately trained, sensitivity and specificity, but nothing's perfect you know mm. so, so if you you know maybe auscultation is not great but it doesn't mean that ultrasound is the the definitive test and maybe uh, um you know radiographs might be more appropriate or further mm. imaging however not in the you know we don't we don't want to advocate using that in a distant patient yeah. you know just just do thoracic yeah. if you're concerned as i think it's um uh, Plunkett's book always says, "Don't don't let uh, diagnostic imaging be a terminal procedure." And I love that phrase. <laughs> like it's, you know, it should, you know. And this is why the use of ultrasound, I think, is great in in, in emergencies because mm. we we can use it to help us. Yeah. But it's interesting as well. I find that that no, you know none no real diagnostic images, as in no you know specialist diagnostic images, tend to use these techniques we sort of crept in haven't we like borrowed from the the er docs and crept in and and using these things and i suppose that what we're looking at is artifacts in the in the chest like we're not looking at real things but we're looking at maybe a bit more fluid you know to 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 say if there's b lines you know it's Mm. a it's a it's a bit more of an artifact rather than a a real thing and uh, and so so if you if these are the techniques to use, do you use it like at, at, at one point in time or? or? No, we, I think it would be useful certainly on admission when the patient you know is, is uh, you've done a physical exam, you're giving oxygen or whatever, or, or start resuscitation. I think it's definitely a useful thing to do on admission, um, and then I think for certain things is actually better to do serial examination so sometimes you have let's say collapsed dog presents in and you have a negative abdominal ultrasound for fluid so that you can't see any free fluid at the four things at the four um, um, sites so basically you start resuscitation and in, if the patient is hypotensive and you, your, your resuscitation is effective, you may want to repeat the ultrasound maybe in an hour or so and you may find some more fluid. Uh, and that can happen you know, with, with any sort of um, um, process, whether it's a hemorrhage or septic peritonitis. And it's, it's not uncommon that septic peritonitis, for example, come in completely collapsed with... Um, 
uh, no free fluid in the abdomen, we start resuscitation, we recheck it, and then we find it, we're, and then we're able to sample it and make a diagnosis. So sometimes it's a matter of rechecking. Same thing for, for the, I guess, for the, uh, for the thorax. You may want to quantify the degree of how many B lines are there, but I think that's always quite subjective. Um, and, and I would be quite cautious in, in, in doing that because I think the clinical exam and the clinical um, findings are probably more important than the numbers of B-lines in, in my point of view. Um, uh, absolutely. And I think, the thing, as, as you said, that you, you need, um, if I was going to clarify a, a, a point, is that like, you need to have a question, don't you? And like, when you're using these mm. techniques, you know, is there any free fluid or am I suspicious of a pneumothorax? And I, I, I love those that when Shaden was doing the podcast and he spoke to uh, um, uh, to uh, um, Andy. Um, anyway, <laughs> we spoke to Andy and Alec in the in the in the in the backlog um, of of these uh, of these podcasts about about radiographic uh, radi- you know ten tips about using radiology. Like his his main question was was about. You know, do you, you know what question do you have? You know, mm. like using these uh, imaging techniques is not going to give you an answer unless mm. you have a question. So, you're like, yeah. does it have pericardial effusion? Yeah. You know, is there is there uh, thoracic thoracic fluid? Um, you know, is there uh, abdominal fluid? Like, you yeah. know, specific questions help to give you answers. But if you're saying, I don't know what's wrong with this animal, I'm just going to put a probe on, yeah. then then it, it limits our ability to to help give us that that information absolutely and again it may be useful maybe in the huge emergency situation but then using it as a fishing exercise may not necessarily be yeah the right thing mm-hmm. um then again I, I don't think the ultrasound may be uh may be considered like a complete replacement for radiographs not like you said like um yeah, I like the non-terminal, don't make it a, a, a terminal procedure. In some cases, you know, the ultrasound may help you in distinct patients to rule out cardiac disease if you look at the left atrium to aorta ratio in the presence of of crack calls or OB lines uh, or harsh lung sounds and uh, it may help you with pleural effusion. But for example, if you have, I guess I always have problems with the diaphragmatic rupture uh, or extension of pneumothorax. So the radiographs do have potentially, st- do still have a role. It's just knowing how the ultrasound can actually delay um, the time to, to perform the radiograph. So while before the radiographs were an extremely useful diagnostic <laughs> procedure in the stabilization process, now actually we've got the ultrasound that avoids all those deaths that occurred while doing the radiology. And so we can do that after an exclusion sort of process that we do with the ultrasound. Um, Absolutely. I think think it's... uh yeah, it's, it's I mean, complicated, didn't it? Where radiology sort of comes in. So it was, it was the, the top 10 tips by Andrew Parry. That was, uh, I didn't mm. know why Parry's uh, name suddenly fell off um, out of my head. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you know, we need we need a question to ask and, and does it help? And if not, yeah, absolutely. Maybe we need to, to, uh, um, uh, to use a different imaging mm. modality. And I, I suppose as well, if we think about 20 years ago, 
um, or or even when when, when I, I didn't I when did I uh, so you know even when I graduated you're still having to process films you know and now yeah. digital radiography is the norm and so that means it's a it's a lot faster and maybe certain things need to be a- addressed with that it's not so necessarily terrible the amount of time that you know we, we need to have a patient in a position and can can get an image but mm. but absolutely ultrasound has sort of superseded uh, a lot of its use in, in the emergency room because well why would you why would you need to you know take a radiograph yeah. if you can if you have a specific question then then you can it can help you that way what what else do you tend to use ultrasound for when you're when you're uh, in the emergency room? To be honest, not like I'm not an imager. I'm just a bit worried about overinterpreting the ultrasound findings. Uh, like I've had cases, not personally and uh, not here, but like in practice, very emergency, very um, expert em- em- emergency vets. Like I'm speaking about like decades of, of practice, made the wrong decision by overinterpreting ultrasound uh, findings, not being trained in ultrasound. So making a diagnosis of pyometra and taking to surgery patients that were not <laughs> that didn't have a pyometra and that actually didn't have a surgical um cause so i i usually like using it for example to have a suspicion that then we're, we're lucky here isn't it because we've got imagers that 24 hours can come if we think it's such an emergency and um but i think i only use it to make a diagnosis of suspicion and then basically i want to confirm it so i i rarely use it to make a a final diagnosis so for example i don't know looking with acute kidney uh, patients with azotemia um maybe having a look at the kidney having an idea if potentially there are chronic changes or um or potentially how's the uh, renal pelvis is it dilated is there potentially hyronephrosis uh, and that can give me an idea of if i need to worry about potential ureteral obstruction or this Kind of things uh, looking for example for masses as well like a patient with hemoabdomen looking at the spleen and the liver to see for eventual masses um, obviously then it's it's kind of difficult as well I, I guess for non-expert people and one of those distinguishing between liver and spleen so you, you've got to be careful um, I guess in, in calling it and in calling it as well what kind of neoplasia do you see would you, you diagnose um, other thing which I find actually quite useful is the gallbladder assessment so if you if you get an ectric patient and it looks like it's got um, potentially um, a mucosal then that could trigger a bit more quicker investigations. Um, similarly, a patient that presents with uh, collapse, uh, severe obtundation, well, collapse, um, uh, gastrointestinal signs, acute, uh, in shock, and then you look at the gallbladder and it looks like with a halo sign, so gallbladder wall edema, then you may, th- I may think maybe a bit more into the um, anaphylaxis. That's the kind of things that that probably I look. But again, not being an imaging trained person, I tend not to overinterpret. But then again, I'm I'm a 
Yeah. We're all spoiled here by our amazing imagers. They're always happy to to come and help. But it might give us guidance, and I think mm. that's it. Until you need to make a decision, yeah. like the, the the following day on, on things like that, or if you if you have suspicions, in particular anaphylaxis, or whether a, you know whether you think there might be a mucosal, and ask one of our images to to have a have a, a bit more of a, for a look. A- absolutely. But I, I was, was listening to you, thinking actually that our you know that we're, we're uh, you know only a, a few years, I suppose, apart in our training and seeing how um, you know Vicente who's just left, who is m- even more competent at, at imaging, and uh, and say uh, one of our new residents is even more competent mm. at imaging, and how I think it's probably because the, the the accessibility of it, you know, that it was still probably expensive when you or I were. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're graduating we didn't have that much use of it or, or you know you and we had one ultrasound and one of the practice I worked there was this massive beast that you know the lights dimmed when you turn on the power yeah. supply of the draining all the energy <laughs> for the local uh, local switchboard and uh, you know it took five minutes to warm up and then the image quality wasn't good and and now as we we're saying before you know you maybe with you know seven grand or whatever you can yeah. you can buy a probe and put it on your phone and have a you know like yeah. a, a whiz bang image if you're a techno savvy but you know there's not a lot of money to buy a a, a pretty decent machine as we yeah. know and it's you know that the machine that we've had here for the last four years has been like a workhorse of a of machine we can't underestimate its its use and how it's changed sort of what we what we do um do you, do you use it anyway when you're concerned about like cardiac patients or patients you might think uh have cardiac disease uh, i use it but then again uh looking just few few simple things like left atrium to aorta ratio and that's about it i mean i can i can certainly look for pericardial effusion uh, and potentially trying to see if there's a mass in the ventricular groove or but i will leave that call anyway to the imager to the cardiologists uh, and then maybe looking at the right side of the heart as well to 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 have an idea of potential presence of pulmonary hypertension that is acute. Um, the other thing that I tend to use for is, f- and I'm, I'm sure I could be shot down for this, but it's fluid responsiveness. So maybe in a patient that is uh, hypotensive and you want to see if it's actually hypovolemic, you could look at the uh, sort of ventricle, the left ventricle that is basically has an end diastolic yeah, sort of volume that is equal to zero. So just close because it's completely in, in systole. Um, sorry, in systolic um, volume that yeah. is basically zero. Uh, but I think there is a lot of argument against it, obviously. So it cannot be used as 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 an indicator of hypovolemia. But it, I think it, if used with a clinical exam and with your clinical suspicion, it can actually guide you in in giving a fluid bolus in a patient that is hypotensive i had a, a quick conversation as i mentioned to you earlier actually with certain uh boys in, when we came out of uh, uh when he came out of a, of a lecture and, and saying about you know, i mean i suppose that is the valhalla of, of using point of care ultrasound to see volume responsiveness but i think there's there's not really a lot in the literature about it and there's been you know, Vicente's uh, uh, study looking at with, with blood donor dogs, so seeing at the caudal vena cava diameter whether that changed significantly or not was mm-hmm. was was negative with a with a amount of, of blood volume given for blood donation, which is a significant um, volume of of blood. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's maybe that's understandable. And there was an abstract presented at uh, Evex last by year. the French 
group in Lyon, yeah. And and that showed? And showed that basically following blood donation, the caudal vena cava and the caudal vena cava to aorta ratio decreased. So it could be actually uh, an indicator for um, fluid responsiveness or, or anyway hypovolemia. Um, although I don't know if we we can still extrapolate a cutoff for that. Yeah, I think I think we're not there yet, and I think no. it, it's probably um, obviously more more studies need to go. Mm. And 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 I, I was I was wondering, and I was speaking to CERN about this, whether it's more than more than one thing that we need to look at, rather than yeah. just one thing. You know, is it as you said, like looking at the heart as well as looking at the call of vena cava, as well as looking at something else that might guide us but i suppose these studies are always going to look at whatever gold standard mm. there is and cardiac output monitoring that's way and beyond what we want to talk about <laughs> here but uh, um but you know i, I think I, it, it's interesting that we're we're starting to play with that but I, it is quite subjective isn't it that that you know that use so, of ultrasound i think at the moment we don't we, we and don't it's know. so operator independent as well like you know like it, it, it's not it seems easy, like from the, the abstract presenters, it seems like in three, four minutes you can do an assessment, probably even less. But it, it does, you know, it depends on the pressure. I think it, it does depend on how, the amount of pressure that you apply, because the cotyl cave is obviously collapsible, so you may alter the diameter. Like, I, I, it depends also which window you use. I, I don't know, I think there are several aspects that need to be clarified before this is clinically used with robustness or with with confidence well let's hope that if it is that no one uh, tries to trademark that name that might make it difficult for uh, for further uh, people to to talk about it uh, <laughs> on open mics um do you, do you, so you, I, I suppose the only other thing with uh, like cardiac a, a assessment I, I think like dilated cardiomyopathies might mm. be a, a something to see i mean i, I definitely have no idea mm. about uh, mitral valve or well, i suppose we don't have a doppler on our mm. on our uh, on our machine anyway not but not yet no. not yet <laughs> but uh, i think dcm might be not a you yeah. know, not too difficult because yeah. it, if it's just not doing much and 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 maybe like there's a maybe a trap for young players about pericardial effusions like sometimes we see these enormous left atriums in patients that people mm. can think are so thin walled that that uh, um, maybe that's a, a pericardial fusion, and, and, yeah. and I've definitely um, remember a couple of occasions seeing that and thinking, "Hang on a minute, this is <laughs> better not drain it. We better not yeah. drain this because uh, maybe we'll make the patient a bit a bit hypervolemic." Um, absolutely, I think. I mean, I think it's a, an amazing um, uh, technology that we have or ability to do that. But I suppose it, we, you know, we've got to put it in the clinical context of why yeah. that patient has, has come in and, and very rarely use it as a um, or shouldn't use it as a as the sole use of of how we're going to guide our, our therapy in this in the in these patients but there's definitely lots of literature out there about its use and i'm sure mm. more and more will come out and it, you know the, and the, as the uh, um, as it gets cheaper and cheaper more people are gonna are gonna use it and 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 you know i think we're seeing um, you know, our, our residents get more, you know, have more and more experience, more and more comfortable with it. And I think we don't use it, like, think of the applications of the ultrasound are a huge, we're focusing on the thorax and abdomen, and we already spoke about a huge amount of applications, isn't it? But then if you think at, like, increased intracranial hypertension, looking at optic sheet, nerve diameter uh, or transcranial Doppler uh, or look at, I don't know, like um, central venous catheter placement. 
that's a huge thing, especially in pediatric and neonatal medicine. Hence, it should become for us as well. You know, how many times do we struggle placing central catheters in collapsed cats? I think it's it's our kind of nightmare as <laughs> supervisors <laughs> because you know that it's actually kind of challenging, but that can help. Uh, or, or even I think we have to start thinking about regional analgesia uh, and ultrasound guidance in the emergency room, potentially. I mean, not obviously on, on admission, but maybe earlier than we used to. So it's, 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 it's got yeah, a huge application. I think it's, it's extremely exciting. As a yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think uh, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you know, uh, Jaime does a lot of uh, use yeah. of ultrasound. One of our anaesthetists here the, at the Royal Vet College uses a lot of ultrasound to to uh, to get uh, local yeah. regional analgesia and and uh, and doing doing great work with with yeah. that. Absolutely. I think the um, placement of ultras, uh, sorry, placement of uh, catheters. Um, I think there was a post actually at IVEX about mm. that, and I think that you know, the time it takes to place catheters might have been longer using ultrasound. But um, I, I, you know, you can use it, and it might help guide people to use that technique more successfully. Because I know that some people's you know, initial resilience to use a technique such as placing a central line is the first time they do it, it doesn't go so well. So maybe, you know, maybe we're asking the, the wrong questions. Maybe it's not the length of time. Maybe actually, can you train people better to put it in if they use ultrasound? Yeah. I know in people, it's more the, the number of uh, um, uh, movements that you have and trying to limit that and make it all a, a, mm. a bit um, cleaner and so, you know, less infections. But I think we don't have the same numbers of. Of, uh, of of catheter placements to to look at that data. Oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. I do, you know, I'm not sure of an institution that that would uh, you know has that. Maybe that needs to be a global collaboration um, to 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 look at those those sort of things yeah. in in the future. Um, where, where do you think the future is going to go with ultrasound? Well, I don't. I think definitely like uh, all the hemodynamics are going to be very useful. You know, as we get. I mean, if if you look at, uh, I've been. In, couple of like human courses and they're looking into training the um, the emergency clinicians into trying to um, looking at you know cardiac output derivating through trans thoracic um, ultrasound or echocardiography so I think that's definitely something non-invasive that emergency and critical care clinicians may well be involved in the, the development uh, certainly for increasing intracranial pressure I would love to, to see if, if we can actually find any way of diagnosing increased intracranial pressure that goes beyond or that, goes, that comes a little bit earlier than the Cushing's reflex um, or, or even yes in, in terms of usage of, of ultrasound in, in, in local analgesia a little bit earlier in regional analgesia even earlier than than in the induction room. I think that would be a nice achievement for us. I think it would be good. Mm. Well, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there, uh, Dr. Cortellini. Um, many, many thanks for your, for your time today. No, thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> no worries. And, uh, and thank you, uh, the audience, for, for listening. Um, and so please don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. You can just get it automatically downloaded to, to wherever you are in the world. Um, if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, uh, that would really, really be great. Well, no matter where you are in the world, if you could just... Uh, 
spend a couple of minutes out of your day to, to do that that would be great and help with metrics um, in in ways that uh, that will 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 work out one one day um, so don't forget to tell tell your uh, veterinary friends and colleagues and uh, nurses students who, whoever um, that would be that would be great to get them to, to have a listen to this and uh, and let us know what you think so we'll place a few notes in the obviously um, pages or some links to some papers that might be of interest if you're interested in the use of ultrasound in the emergency room um, so if you just type in RVC clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree as usual if you have any comments or suggestions of this podcast get in get in touch you can either email me um dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk um, or you can tweet me or uh, follow me at don barfield on twitter so until next time bye bye <laughs>